Well, good morning, everybody. That was weak. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, that's much better. It's wonderful to see you today. It's beautiful January day. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, you know, starting some new habits at the beginning of a new year, we are so glad to have you. Uh, we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you feel right at home and you fit right in here at the Vista. Now today we are starting off the, the new year with uh, a brand new sermon series, a series we are very excited about, a series called This is Water. And if the title rings a bell with you, it might be because it is also the title of one of the more famous public speeches given in the last 20 or so years. It was delivered by David Foster Wallace back in 2005. Here's a picture of David Foster Wallace. You can tell he's a smart guy. He wears a bandana around on his head. You've got to be pretty smart to get away with that. And Foster Wallace, he was a, a prodigiously talented writer, thinker, kind of cultural commentator. He was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize at one point. But his life was cut tragically short at age 46 when he committed suicide after a very difficult battle with depression and mental health. <clears throat> and, and Wallace, he was not a Christian. He was very skeptical of religion, in fact. But he was also one of those people who's just a really honest soul. You ever met somebody like that? I mean, they may not be Christians, but they're just really honest people. And uh, he was particularly gifted uh, at this thing where he, he, he really struggled with belief. He did. But he also really struggled with unbelief. And sometimes the only thing more difficult than belief is unbelief, right? And its consequences. Some of us have been there. I've been there. Unbelief is just difficult as belief. Trust me. And because of this, he was particularly gifted at helping modern people understand the, the oddity of our current cultural moment. Because I really don't think it's being hyperbolic to suggest that human life has changed more in the last, I don't know, hundred years, okay, than it had changed in all of human history prior. Does it sound hyperbolic to you? I really think it's true. Right, now, some of these changes are very, very good. A lot of them are very, very good. We should be grateful for them. Like, I, I, for one, am grateful that making modern breakfast, right? You know, you make modern breakfast today? The making of modern breakfast is a great thing. This is a gift from the Lord through technology, right? Making modern breakfast involves what? It involves you going to your refrigerator. Aren't refrigerators awesome? Oh, my God. They're the greatest thing in the world. And you go there, you get your bacon, your eggs, and you leisurely sip on a cup of coffee while your bacon and eggs cook themselves. That's making modern breakfast. Isn't that fantastic? Thanks be to God, right? Now, whereas not too long ago, making breakfast would have involved what? It would involve me waking up, putting on my animal skin pelt, grabbing a spear, and then wrestling a saber-toothed tiger to the death. My death or his, but one of us was eating breakfast, right? You never knew who it was going to be. That was old breakfast. And so I'm very grateful for, for modern breakfast and the way it's made. That's a great invention. But then some of these changes that have happened in the last 100, 150 years, they're not so good, right? As I would imagine we could all agree that any human being having the power to blow up the world with a push of a button is probably not a power any human being is fit to wield. Can I get an amen? I mean, do y'all really think that people who are capable of doing this should be able to blow up the world with a push of a button? Ew. Hey, now... Before you laugh at this man, you remember, we're all just two Miller Lights on an empty stomach away from doing the old Yeti Swan dive. He is all of us, and none of us need to be able to blow up the world with a button. But before we can assess 
all the ways in which our current moment is like good or bad or good and bad and bad and or good and all these things. We have to be able to what? We have to be able to understand our current moment. And that can be very, very difficult because, and you all know this, we often have the most difficult time understanding what? Those very things that we're closest to. We have the hardest time understanding those things that we are most absorbed and, no pun intended, the things we are most immersed in. We have the most difficult time understanding. And so in his famous This Is Water speech, David Foster Wallace starts out with this modern parable. It's really helpful. It serves as kind of the premise for the whole series. Here's how it goes. There are these two young fish, okay, they're swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming the opposite direction. Older fish nods at them, says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other, and he goes, what the hell is water? And you get it, and you get it, it's a good parable. It's tough to do what? It's tough to talk to a fish about water. Why? Because a fish doesn't know that water exists. Because for a fish, all that exists is water. You see my three friends over here? I'm glad they're not dead. I was worried they might die. I've named them Dave, Jordan, and Lauren. And do you think that Dave, Jordan, and Lauren, do you think that these guys, do you think that they know water exists? Do you think if I ask them, hey, is the temperature okay in here? Do you think they know water exists? Of course they don't know water exists. Why? Because water is all that they have ever known. And so what we're going to do in this series, okay, it's very difficult. We're going to attempt the impossible. Because what we're going to attempt to do my fellow fish, is talk about water together. We're going to try to talk about certain, certain movements, certain moods, certain behaviors, certain realities, certain ways of thinking that we are all so absorbed and immersed in that it's hard for us to understand them. And we're going to try to understand these waters in which we swim a little better so that we can hopefully, and by God's grace, swim in them a bit more faithfully. That sound good? Hope it sounds good because that's what's going down. Um, we're going to start off today talking about identity. Talking about identity as modern people. It's a very complicated thing, which means that we have to talk about how the world lost its story. Got your Bibles? Grab them. We'll be in two different places Old Testament, New Testament. Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9, <clears throat> and then Mark 1, 9 through 15. We'll start off. In Deuteronomy, excuse me, as always, it'll be uh, up here on the screen for you if you would like. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. So this is Moses talking. He says, you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down to Egypt and he sojourned there few in number, but there he became a great, mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly. They afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and he has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 26. Flip over to Mark 1 now. We'll read verses 9 through 15. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens and said, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. 
Now immediately the Spirit impelled him, Jesus, to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John, John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God as saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, 9 through 15. So if you were growing up as an ancient little Jewish boy or girl, then this first story, the story from Deuteronomy 26, this is a story that you would have heard every single day of your life growing up. It starts out like this. My father was a wandering Aramean. Isn't that a good first line? I like that. My father was a wandering Aramean, which is, of course, a reference to who? Anybody know who? I'll give you one of our goldfish if you get it right. Anybody know who he's talking about? Uh, Abraham close, very close to Abraham. Maybe a little later down the line than Abraham, anybody? Okay, no goldfish for any of you. Um, he's talking about Jacob, right? Jacob, Jacob, one of the most famous of Israel's patriarchs, and he was the grandson of Father Abraham, who was the father of all Jewish people. And, of course, Jacob wasn't literally your father, right? You lived hundreds of years later. Jacob wasn't literally your father. You weren't literally rescued out of Egypt and delivered to the promised land. But this was still your story. This was the story you lived. This was the story you breathed. And this story was the most important thing about you because you have been called and you've been rescued and you've been blessed by God and then given a commission to bless the world in the name of God who had rescued and blessed you. And so this was your story. But then this was also the world's story, right? Even if the world didn't know it yet, even if the world continued to tell many other false stories about itself. That brings us to the second story. Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully you've heard of him. It's a pretty big deal around here. At this point, though, he's what? He's a nobody from nowhere. He comes out of nowhere to be baptized in the Jordan River. Immediately upon doing so, the heavens open and Almighty God is delighted to declare that this is His beloved Son. Jesus then immediately goes out into the wilderness where He is tested for 40 days. And when He emerges, He's got something to say. Hey, listen up. The kingdom of God is at hand, so you better repent and believe in the gospel. In these seven simple verses, Mark is telling us what? Mark is telling us that Jesus is picking up and fulfilling Israel's story. Okay, follow with me here. Mark is telling us that Jesus is, up, is picking up and fulfilling the story of the Old Testament. That just as Israel was what? Just as Israel was delivered through the waters of what? Just delivered through the waters of the Red Sea. You remember that? The parting of the Red Sea? And then led out into where? Into the wilderness where they were tempted for how long? For 40 years before emerging with a message for the world. So Jesus has done what? Jesus has gone through the waters of the Jordan River. Then he's been led out where? He's been led out into the wilderness where he's tempted for how long? For 40 days instead of 40 nights. Then he emerges with a message for the world. Mark is telling us that the Creator God, the God who created the heavens and earth in Genesis 1 called Abraham in Genesis 12, is fulfilling his mission to bless the world through Israel by doing it through Israel's Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. Mark is telling us that Jesus' story is Israel's story, which is the world's story. You see how quickly Mark sums up the entire story of human history and the story of the Bible right here? Jesus' story is Israel's story, the story of the Old Testament, which is the world's story. And I want you to consider for just a moment, this is kind of an aside even, but I want you to consider how unlikely it is that this story about this crucified Jewish Messiah who is a nobody who was crucified in this really small corner of the world, okay? How quickly this story took over 
the world. And I've mentioned this before because it's such a great example of trying to talk to fish about water. Right? But you and I and all modern people, we look around and we think it's so obvious that all humans are created equal and with equal rights. It's so obvious to you and me. As Thomas Jefferson most famously put it in the Declaration of Independence. You remember this? Sixth grade sociology class, history class. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. Evident to all selves who? Ourselves. What? That all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you might have heard this so many times that it has never occurred to you how incredibly stupid that is. Right? Because, y'all, if there is anything at all that is self-evident about everybody it is that nobody is created equal. Look around this room. Does it really occur to you naturally that everybody in this room is created equal? Of course not. We've got unequal what? We've got unequal bank accounts, physical stature, health, family support. You name it. Nobody in here is created equal to the naked eye. And this is why nobody before Jesus ever believed in universal equality or human rights because it was Jesus, not Thomas Jefferson, who taught us to look upon the sick, the suffering, the abandoned, and see the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. That ain't Thomas Jefferson, that's Jesus Christ. All that to say, the fact that you and me and all modern people, we think that it's obvious, that it's self-evident that all people are created equal with equal rights. You know what that is? That is evidence of how powerful a hold Jesus' story still has on modern people, even among those who no longer believe in him. Now, if you believe in that vision of humans and human rights, then you have bought into Jesus' story, hook, line, and sinker, even if you deny it. And yet, while Jesus' story still holds us in these very powerful ways beyond our comprehension, we do live in this particular space and time where various people, where dare I say all people, including every single person in the room this morning, we are losing this story. By which I mean that the story that God told the world in Christ, even if you believe it, is not the most important thing about you. It may be very important to you, but it is not the most important thing about you. And so now let's talk a little bit about what probably is the most important thing about you. Let's talk about some of the rival stories that are currently shaping our world and our identities. Right? There are a lot of stories we could talk about before. Brevity's sake, I've tried to compress these down to the three main rival stories. Let's call rival story number one, the American dream. We've all heard it. Many of us believe it. Here's how it goes. Once upon a time, America was a shiny beacon then progressives erected an enormous federal bureaucracy. They subverted traditional beliefs and opposed God every step of the way. Instead of adhering to traditional American values of family and personal responsibility, they preached promiscuity and victimhood. Instead of requiring people to work for a living, they encouraged welfare. We need to take our country back from those seeking to undermine it because if we work hard and protect our family and country, then God will bless us, our families and our nation. And as you can probably tell, this is a story that tends to appeal to people who are more what? Yeah, more conservative, right? If you've got like the, the cruise bumper sticker on your car, then you heard this story and you were like, hmm, fits like a glove, right? That is it. That's the one. That's obviously the story. And in this story, our identities are very wrapped up in what? 
and our family and our country and our prosperity. And while many parts of this story are true, and that's very important to know, many parts of the story are true. And our families and our country should be important to us, right? That's kind of our closest proximity, your families and your country. This is where you are. It should be important to you. But the story as a whole, okay, the story pretending to be the whole story is a lie. Because Jesus was very clear that the prosperity of our families and our country cannot be our ultimate concern because they are not his ultimate concern. Right, let's just remind ourselves of a few of the things Jesus said about this. I, I know they're inconvenient truths, but they're there. We'll only look at Luke's gospel. I'll make it as painless as possible. Right? We'll only look at Luke's gospel. This is Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, hey, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Not a good verse for Mother's Day, but there it is nonetheless. <laughs> Luke 12, 51 through 53. Jesus says, hey, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? Nope. I tell you, rather, I came to bring division. For from now on, five members in one household are going to be divided, right? Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And those last two make sense, but the rest are really... <laughs> Difficult, you know, they're hard. All right, finally, Luke 6. This is a tough one. But woe to you who are rich. Who's that? That's probably basically everybody in this room this morning. Woe to you who are rich, not metaphorically rich, rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now. Anybody well fed right now? I'm very well fed. I ate a big modern breakfast. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And we could go on, and it would get ugly. But hopefully this is a sufficient reminder that the American dream you know, of optimism and familial and national prosperity, parts of the story are true, yes, but it is not the story that God told the world in Christ. Right? It is a rival story. And that brings us to rival story number two, which is in many ways the opposite of the American dream. So I have decided to name it the critical nightmare. The critical nightmare. When we've all heard this story, many of us believe it. Here's how it goes. Once upon a time, the vast majority of humans suffered in societies and institutions that were unjust and oppressive. <clears throat> These traditional societies were reprehensible because of their deep-rooted inequality, exploitation, and irrational traditionalism. But the noble aspiration for equality defeated the forces of oppression and established modern, liberal, democratic societies. There's still much work to be done to dismantle the vestiges of inequality, exploitation, and repression. And the liberation and inclusion of all people is the one mission worth dedicating one's life to achieving. As you probably notice, this story tends to appeal to people who are more what? Yeah, more liberal or progressive, right? If you've got that Beto sticker just ready to go for his run, you hear the story and you're like, oh my God, that is it, right? That's it. And in this story, our identities tend to be very wrapped up in what? Very wrapped up in our class, our race, our gender, and our sexuality. And as in the American dream, parts of this story are true. That's why we're drawn to it. Parts of the story are true. And God's commitment to justice and liberation for all races and peoples is a story that the Bible tells from cover to cover. Okay, Parts of this story are true. 
But the story as a whole, the story as the whole story, is a lie. Because Scripture refuses to let anybody comfortably settle down into the role of critic. When you get to walk around and just neatly divide everybody, victim or oppressor, or oppressor or victim, or privileged or not privileged. All right, let's just remind ourselves about some of the things Scripture has to say about this. We'll only be in Romans, okay? We were in Romans for a whole semester. Let's only be in Romans. Romans 2, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. In context, Paul's talking about this Jew-Gentile conflict in the early Roman house churches. In application to us, Paul would say, look, when you walk around the world thinking you're the enlightened critic who can lump everybody into the victim or oppressor box, then you've just revealed that you're no better than anybody else because you can't make your peace with the fact that that's what you're doing, to feel self-righteous about yourself. Romans 3.23, we've all heard this one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Everybody's together on this one. And it's the most important category. Finally, Romans 3, 9 through 12. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Right? They, who is they? They is whoever uh, is the person or group on this planet who most annoys you. Right? If you're a person who's very progressive, then you know who that group is. I won't say it out loud, though. Are we better than they? What does Paul say? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. <clears throat> As it is written, there's nobody who's righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they've all become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. <clears throat> In other words, for Paul, the fundamental category for humans is not victim and oppressed. It's not privileged or not privileged. It is guilty and not guilty. In newsflash, everybody guilty. Okay, victim and oppressed, those are real categories. We need to talk about them. The modern church has not done that very well. That's why there's a reckoning happening. Those are real categories. But the fundamental category is guilty and not guilty. And JC's not guilty and we're all guilty. And that's the most important category. And we can go on, but hopefully this is a sufficient reminder that the critical nightmare in which everything is reducible to a class, race, gender, sexuality, power play, <clears throat> when we neatly label everyone either pure victim or pure oppressor, is not the story that God told the world in Christ. Parts of the story are true, but it is not the story that God told the world in Christ. That brings us to rival story number three, which is in many ways <clears throat> the most dangerously false story. And uh, we've all heard it, and we all believe it. And I would suggest that we call it the freedom of choice. Right? The freedom of choice. Like I said, this is a story that we all believe. Here's how it goes. Once upon a time, we were not free because we were not free to choose. Because everything was chosen for us. Our family, our profession, our location, our religion. But now, we are free because we are free to choose. Free to be and believe what we want. Free to create our own lives. <clears throat> free to choose our own stories. As I said, this story, freedom of choice, it is the most dangerously false story precisely because it looks and feels and sounds so obviously true to all of us, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if you're super conservative or you're super progressive. If you're a modern person, and unless you found the old fountain of youth today, you know, you are. If you're a modern person, then you believe this story because you believe that freedom be more specific, the freedom to choose is the most important thing in the world. And I know this is going to sound a little bit abrasive, okay? But don't walk out on me here. 
But Christians, okay, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, Christians are not free to believe that the freedom to choose is the most important thing in the world. Okay, no tomatoes. We're good. Say it again. Christians are not free to believe that the freedom to choose is the most important thing in the world. I mean, y'all, when Jesus came out of the wilderness with his message for the world, what was that message? Was it, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, which means I am here to help you choose and create your own stories. Is that what Jesus said? No. What did Jesus say? He said, hey, repent and believe in the gospel. You say, hey, listen up. I'm about to tell you your story, and so you better submit to it instead of trying to make up your own. It's going to go bad for you if you try to make up your own. As is usually the case, um, <clears throat> I think that Stanley Harawas, he's a, he's a theologian from Texas. Time Magazine called him America's greatest theologian. He cusses way too much. I really like him. <laughs> I think he puts it best, right? This is kind of a heady quote, but let it work on you. I think it'll, I think, let it simmer for a little bit and you'll get it. He, this is what he says. He says, the project of modernity, the modern world, was to produce people who believe they should have no story except the story they choose when they have no story. Okay, so pause, right? So, so the goal is for you to get to this place where you're all rational and you're objective and you've got no ties and you're free to choose. And then at that point, you're free to choose your own story and that's the only way you're really free and that's really important. Right? Such a story is called the story of freedom. That story is the enemy we must attack through Christian preaching. Now, I am well aware that you may think, I cannot be serious. How can anybody be against freedom? Let me assure you, I am serious. I do not believe that the story of freedom is a true or good story. I don't believe it's a good story because it is so clearly a lie. For the truth is that since we are God's good creation, we are not free to choose our own stories. Freedom lies not in creating our lives, but in learning to recognize our lives as a gift. And we could go on. But hopefully this is a sufficient reminder or something towards a sufficient reminder that the freedom of choice is also not a good story because it's not a true story. And all it does in the end is leave us in bondage to our so-called freedom, the power to choose. Like I reminded you during the Roman series, freedom is what? Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. That's amateur freedom. Freedom is submission to Christ, not doing whatever you want to do. Let's end with this. <clears throat> Many of us, dare I say most of us, dare I say all of us, we've, we've lost our identity. We struggle with identity as modern people. Why? Because we've lost our story. That's where it comes down from. You can't know who you are until you know what your story is. And we didn't mean to lose it. You know, none of us intentionally were like, forget it, I'm going to make up my own. We didn't mean to, but it still, it still happened. Because it is what happens when we take the story that God told the world in Christ and we use it to underwrite some other story. Be it the American dream or the critical nightmare or the freedom of choice or any of these many other imposters. We take the story that God told the world in Christ and we use it to underwrite a story that we like more. And this is not one of those uh, sermons that I'm going to be able to wrap up with a neat, tidy little bow. I love when I can do that for you. I do, but I went looking for bows for weeks. None of them were big enough. So instead of a bow, what I'm going to leave you with is a reminder that I want you to sit with, chew on, let simmer over the days and weeks and months ahead. Okay? Here's the reminder. The most important thing about you 
some of you I know very well, some of you I don't know at all, but I know this. The most important thing about you, whoever you are here today, is not your family, okay? And it is not your country. And it is not your prosperity. And it's not your class. It's not your race. It's not your gender. It's not your sexuality. And it's not your freedom to choose. No, the most important thing about you, no matter who you are, is that your father was a wandering Aramean. The most important thing about you is Christ. And I can't tell you everything that's supposed to mean for you because I'm not smart enough to tell you that because I'm just another fish in here trying to talk to other fish about water. But what I do know is that we can't know who we are until we accept that the most important thing about us down deep in our bones and every single day, the most important thing about us is Christ until we accept that his story and not any of these imposter stories is our story because we can't know who we are until we get our story back. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. We are here by your good grace. <clears throat> we like to tell ourselves that we, we make up our own stories. And we might try, but that's a very silly thing to do because freedom is submission to you not doing whatever we want. And so we come before you today, and I pray for... Everybody in this room, I pray for old friends who I've known for a really long time. I pray for new friends who I've never met and are here for the first time today. And we confess together that, that we're really struggling to know who we are. We've got an identity crisis going on in the modern world because we've lost our story. We didn't mean to, but we have traded it in for the American dream or the critical nightmare or the freedom of choice or a million other imposter stories. And we pray this morning you might start a process of reminding us what it means to submit to the story that you told the world in Jesus Christ because that story is true and it is good and it is beautiful and we want to submit to it we pray these things in Jesus' name Amen